You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air, and I'm here with always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2008 vampire classic let the right one in i looked over at my box set and i almost said blood sweat and fear (laughs) which is the most insane box set which i guess you might have pulled out when we did sick nurses but it's got three really unconnected films in it it really does it really does it has let the right one in It's got time crimes, and it has sick nurses. We have now conquered two out of three of these films for the show, and it really goes to show that um, we're making it through my collection. We are. We've put a, a good dent in it, although if you were to combine all of the shows that we have done, and if you were to make them individual movies, I think you we would have about two shelves, two yeah two shelves of films that we have completed. Uh, maybe less if you make them if they were all let's say Blu-rays because they take up a little bit less space. But yeah, we're making our way through it. Uh, we're making our way through my Netflix uh, watch list. That's for sure. We actually have Chris owns a Blu-ray copy of this, a gorgeous steel book, and it is. Just a wonderful thing because it's a wonderful film and it's highly rewatchable. I've watched it several times. But for this particular episode of Dead Air, I deigned to watch the remake as well, just for some background. We're not going to do the remake on the show necessarily, but I watched it because I remember starting to watch it the same way I started to watch a remake of Carrie and the same way I started to rewatch the remake of Martyrs. And I felt that I'd already seen this movie before obviously and it was done better so why am i gonna waste my time doing this so i watched the remake of this as well over the last week did you had you seen the remake before or did you have a chance to watch it this week i have seen it before i watched it when it made its way to the movie networks uh i didn't see it in theaters uh i was kind of in the same boat as you when this remake first showed up it was at a very bizarre time and if memory serves me right it was the first film that hammer did that they were like we're back and they got uh chloe grace mortise to play the titular vampire and uh, or at least the, le- the the one the right one that you were to le- let in also the star of carrie Uh, Another remake that you didn't finish. I thought it was interesting that to pointless sounds shitty because I don't want anyone to think that I when this film came out, when the when the remake came out, I did very much have that aggressive stance on remakes. I feel as though when we are getting heavily into our fandom, we start to get rather covetous of the films that we are told that are important and So I was always very defensive of original films getting remade. 
I've eased up on that as I've gotten older because you tend to grow up and mature and you realize that you're not going to waste your time with this film, but perhaps this film will be a nice little gateway into people finding the originals and the originals. Uh, it's, it's not as though nobody um, knows this film and, and all that kind of stuff. And honestly, the let me in the remake of let the right one in, I, I feel like it kind of, came and went and it didn't really hit the way that they thought and this remake on combination with a lot of other remakes of foreign films that were coming out in and around this time uh kind of reminded hollywood that when foreign films hit they don't necessarily need remakes i would really hope that the the, the people remaking the train to Busan had gotten the memo but here we are you're far more forgiving than i am i will never mature out of hating remakes i will never mature or, or out of the feeling of why why on god's green earth why remake a film that has egregious technical issues sure remake a film that you can honestly do better in every single sense don't remake a film just because people don't like subtitles because that's what it translates to me 90% of the time they've remade it because people don't like subtitles. Now there are a few remakes that do really fit that litmus test of this will definitely draw in a new crowd. This definitely saves people from watching uh, an older film or if people were presented with the older film first they may decide this is not a good story or film or genre. And I guess maybe the best example of that is the first Amityville film. It's great. I love it. I love it. I love the remake just as much because it's the same story. It's done well. And it's not even about hot actors or whatever, but it and it doesn't change its timing either. Like it doesn't force it into a contemporary time too much. It is just a great remake. You know, you can remake Psycho and have that same sort of discussion about if someone who is used to contemporary quality and storytelling and pacing to watch some of these older films, it may turn them off the genre as a whole. There's very few films that really serve that purpose. And I don't think that upcoming remake to Train to Busan will, will do that. And this is a great example of it, of it, the idea of remaking a film failing in every aspect, except perhaps the you don't have to watch remakes if you only speak English or can't abide other languages. So it just really grates on me. See, I'm ranting. This is me ranting. I know you don't hear it often, but hello, <laughs> here we are ranting. I appreciate the ranting and I appreciate your passion. You know, I, I passion. I don't know where that came from. I appreciate your passion. Uh, you know, I, and I certainly didn't mean to say like maturing out of it as like a shitty way. I just meant like I, I, I've become more docile perhaps in my older age. Yeah. And so, um, and, and I can, I, I suppose where I don't get angry at the remakes of this sort is because it didn't work, right? Essentially, when you're watching remakes like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Old Boy, what the, f what? Or you are remaking uh, Let the Right One In, I'm just, I always feel as though I'm looking at the hardcore wasting of money. Just 
putting a bunch of fucking bills in a t-shirt cannon and blasting them off into a lake. I just, that is what I feel like I'm looking at. And if audiences latched onto it and said, this is the new fucking flesh. I want this and I don't want the old thing and fuck that. Then I would be, um, I would probably be a little shittier about it. My partner and I have a fun uh, (laughs) sort of, cute couple jokes, jokes or mild arguments because they are younger and they prefer Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003. uh, They will, they've seen the 1974 version, but they just prefer the Jessica Biel one. And I, I respect the 2003 version. I think it's very good. I don't want anyone to think that I don't like that movie. I think it's very good, but better than 1974s? You're on fucking something man you gotta get you gotta get some of that head cheese out of your fucking head brain man mm, uh, delicious but head cheese. you know <laughs> uh, same thing with uh, you mentioned the Amityville Horror they love the Ryan Reynolds one they love the Ryan Reynolds one and they like the original one but you know, it's no comparison to them so there is something to be said for that but yeah, I don't hear anybody have you ever heard anyone say, ooh, let me in? That's the biblical truth. Or is it every, does everyone kind of say the same thing? Like, why? No, yeah, and I don't talk to enough people specifically about this particular film uh, to know. I, I have no uh, Ipsos Reed poll here uh, on who likes what, but I can't imagine anyone liking let me in better than let the right one in. Let the right one in is, is beautiful. It's cinematic. The casting is very interesting and interesting looking and they fit their roles. The dialogue is measured. Everything is gorgeous about this film. Everything. The lack of a score. Uh, There is music used in Let the Right One In, but it's so minimal and it's rarely used. It doesn't stand out where in the remake it's like intruding on the story and there seems to be a fear of quiet and a fear of open spaces in this contemporary filmmaking where aside from some particular auteur directors that were that we could name here in in a contemporary style who are not afraid of silence or long shots or open spaces it seems that there's like a phobia of that in the in the remake where the original film relies on that for atmosphere and it works so beautifully these wide shots long shots open spaces lots of open spaces the use of a very few colors a very muted and stark color palette like when there is a, a complete change in a character when he dons a red jacket you know like a total change in character and that's all it takes for us to have that translated because the the palette is so sparse where in the remake everything is just sort of lost and muddled unfortunately i i i definitely can see your point you know i i think that part of the reason why films like this need to be viewed in the country in which they were uh, well, from the countries in which they were filmed and, 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 and that is because there is something that seems I am not an expert that there's something that seems like this only could have been coming from Sweden that this 
type of quiet, dark, cold, that stillness. It's, it's something that can only come from that place. And I think that it becomes obvious when, as you were pointing out, the remake does not have those qualities. And, and, and I think that when you lose the fundamental core of this, long dialogue scenes, uh, or sorry, long scenes with characters with no dialogue, long scenes with characters doing things that you would normally find repugnant. There's a, there's like a minute long toothbrushing scene in this goddamn flick and you still don't hate it. It's so unique in, and I think that even, and I don't really want to dwell too much on like compare and contrast of the remake because it's just going to sound like fuck the remake. You know, if you like the remake, you know, more power to you. I'm glad you enjoy it. I think you're wrong and that's okay. You're allowed to be wrong about this. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, there is just something to be said about the fact that this film came out in 2008 and I believe the remake was 2010. That doesn't seem to me like it's anything more than just a, an attempt to cash in on something that was uh popular and try to grab the dollars of people who don't want to see a foreign film basically like you were saying yeah yeah unfortunately it's hard to not compare and contrast having seen it so recently if i hadn't seen it recently uh i might not be ranting so heavily on it because it is (laughs) detracting from how much i love let the right one in yeah so let's what the fuck is this movie even about Anyways, I want the deets. Kill is kiss. No, wait, that was two movies ago. But this basically is kill is kiss. Although billed as a horror romance, I think that this is just a really good example of somebody who doesn't have to be tied up in really wondering about the motivations of their bullies or looking to appease them or looking to break out of the isolation that they found themselves in and welcoming these things and their station on planet Earth. Being able to have their eyes opened to the monsters around them, even if that monster is their now closest friend. Just like this movie. The um, sticking point that I always have when I watch this film, every single time, is the children are right to bully Oscar. He's very weird. And sometimes I feel like other children can sense that, can sense weirdos, because... He's he's so weird. He's so fucking strange. And I I I don't it doesn't make me dislike the character. But if if somebody you know, let's if we back it up a bit to a little while ago when you and I were doing um ginger snaps last October and we talked about these are these are the 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 types of girls that you know you just yell freak at and that's because what the script is. And it really seems like I'm looking at characters that are characters that are that a writer is like, they're weird. They're like different. And we're not going to really make that subtle. We're going to make that very obvious. Oscar is the type of character that when I see him, I really genuinely feel like he thinks he's not doing anything. But I think... He's fucking super weird just by observation. And I could see 
like if I went to school with this kid, I wouldn't want I wouldn't bully him, but I wouldn't want to be friends with him. And the fact that he has long scenes of him in his underwear just stabbing the air and then he goes out into the co-op and then he starts stabbing a tree and then he uh you know is it's not even like the serial killer clippings that he has. I'm like, "Yeah, I get it, you little newsy. Like you just like that type of shit." But like it's it's the the blood ritual he wants to do with with uh, Ellie like before he even knows anything really about her Ex- like he's just like he's gonna take her to this weird isolated place cut his hand is like we're gonna mix our fucking blood <laughs> that's epically odd behavior and I feel like I just can't get over that when I'm watching this film. When bullied and isolated, though, you sort of don't have way markers as to how relationships are forged. And if a lot of those informations are coming from crime comics, so to speak, then I I can see where that's coming from. I don't think there's much weird about Oscar. And the weirder things he does are things that most people wouldn't pick on, like the way he looks when he's riding a snow machine with his father and the way he swallows a half liter of chlorinated pool water and though like those are the weirder things that he does otherwise day to day i don't think oscar's that weird and the adults around him don't seem to behave like he's weird at all and the teachers that he interacts with and any other classmate that comes within 10 feet doesn't behave the way the bullies do i think the bullies just have it out for him those particular and not even all of them because it's typical bully hierarchy where there's one that's not really into it that has his own issues there's one that's not into it at all but wants friends and then the uh, actual bully himself and his older brother <laughs> his older brother the super bully he is the super bully he was a bully two years ago and he never stopped <laughs> it's like oh my god he's refining his methods he's evolving um the the yeah all right i could ease up on it i just think that like i think Watching this film, I see characters that absolutely need each other in the sense that one, as we'll find out, is a killer out of necessity. Another is perhaps a budding killer out of want because he feels his bullying. The When he gets bullied, he doesn't really react, doesn't really do anything. Uh, he doesn't really express it to anybody. Either he doesn't think anyone will care, uh, and given the adults in this film, they might actually not. Uh, and and then he has a lot of violence underneath the surface. And Ellie picks up on that almost immediately because she can hear. Now, this is a vampire film, and this was prefaced to me back in 2008 by a guy that I used to work with. So this this is a film I was already working at the Superstore when I saw this. And this guy that I would not really classify as anything but a dude bro. He's he's a very jockey, party, frat boy type of guy. He was a very nice guy, but that he that was his whole vibe. And he asked me when we were in the back like doing some produce boy stuff if I had ever seen this film, he had just watched it. And, you know, he's like, yo, dude, uh, yo, have you seen this movie, Let the Right Win In? I just watched it, man. And I say, oh, no, I, I don't know. He's like, dude, 
It's the greatest vampire film I've ever seen in my fucking life. And I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> so it just so happened that he, he must have also had the movie network because it was on the movie network. And so within a couple of days, I watched it. And I was like, damn, this guy is right. This is a really fucking amazing vampire film. Where did you first encounter it? It's weird because when you when you say uh, the a fairly jockey type person tells you they saw the greatest vampire film they've ever seen, it's going to be Dust Till Dawn or Blade, right? Like that's what you expect. <laughs> you you want some sort of techno music and and sick stompy beats or whatever uh, to accompany everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, it is such a quiet movie, and it was recommended to me by my friend Tom, who had watched quite a few great horror films. It was the same person who introduced me to Martyrs as well. And he didn't typically watch a lot of films that weren't mainstream. He did he did watch particularly films that were fairly mainstream. He was a big fan of the Final Destination series too. But once in a while, there, these movies would just catch his eye and usually very good. So if, if, if he had any sort of taste in films, it's just good films, right? So he didn't specifically seek mm -hmm. out underground horror type things but this one did hit very well it's like that when the football players at school discovered ministry and all of a sudden it was all over and ministry became a mainstream band this movie sort of had that thing where a lot of people were were talking about it for whatever reason probably just because it's so ingenious and it's just such a beautiful story and taking it to what it would really be like to be a vampire. I mean, you'd like to think that what it would really be like being a vampire is something like Anne Rice's interview with a vampire. You know, what from time to time you have to eat rats, but usually you're a rock star or you're an elite or you're just flitting around Paris and owning all these fucking loft apartments or whatever. But no, I think that this is really what it would be like. There's Claudia and there's Ellie. Which one is really more realistic? It's unfortunately Ellie. I'm glad that you touched on the Anne Rice of it all because there's a scene in this film where it seemed almost as if they were directly commenting on that. And that is when Oscar asks Ellie if she's poor. Like, are you, like, I don't get it. Is your family poor? And she points to this artifact. It, it's a puzzle. It looks like an egg, a Fabergé egg, but it's a, a puzzle. And she says, if you ha if I were to sell this, I would have enough to buy a nuclear power plant. It's a weird thing to say that you could buy. But in theory, what this uh, girl is saying is this thing is worth millions and millions of dollars. And I could sell that. And no one ever, he, he never asked, why don't you? But I immediately started to think, like, imagine if she did sell that. And then she became this sort of child countess in some sort of lavish, gothic castle where everything is just, and I was literally in, envisioning, like, the foyer in the first Underworld movie where all these vampires are sort of like draped over fainting couches and they're all dressed to the nines and they all have like big collars and silk shirts and shit and, you know, listening to techno music or whatever the fuck. And I was like, yeah, but then I immediately got into 
contrast with the plot of the film because I would say to myself, well, then she's stationary. You buy a mansion, you're not going to move around. And what is she going to do? Like, like she essentially needs to kill a person a day. People are going to notice that if you start doing that, this is not like the medieval times where you could just be a ruthless ruler and people die and no one really pays any attention or the villagers are too scared to do anything. So it, I, so that's not practical. And so you, you would almost think that she was in this super unenviable position of having all of this money and access to money, but the most foolish thing that she could do is spend it. So she has to live like a nomad and it becomes so much sadder to me. It truly is, because nothing that she needs costs money aside from rent if she isn't squatting, which I'm sure she's done a fair share of squatting, but that money can be found in the pockets of the dead, and, and Oscar makes that point as well. Like, this is stolen money when she offers him money. So, like, at this point in their relationship, he's understood what she is. It doesn't take him too long, really. It takes about like more than half of the movie for him to come to grips with the fact that she's a vampire. But leading up into that, we get very few hints. He gets even fewer hints because we're privy to things like the way her eyes react in the light, the, the fact that she's killed people herself, let alone having her uh, caretaker uh, friend, Hakan, do this stuff for her. Like, we, we know she's a vampire. We know how ruthless she is. We have a great idea of how she needs to live. And this is all new to him because he's just pieced this together without really being privy to what we've been privy to. Yeah, uh, this relationship that she has with her, her Renfield, essentially, he doesn't seem manic. He seems more of like a working class stiff. Somebody who has probably been with her a while. Let me ask you this, Lids. I know that Ellie looks 12 and she's been 12 for a while. How old do you think she is? If you could guess. If I could guess, it's really hard to figure because we get a glimpse of not necessarily what Ellie really looks like, but a shade of what Ellie could look like when she's lapping up some blood at one point. And we get another flash of an older looking Ellie and she only looks, you know, between 40 and 60, somewhere in there. Either really rough 40 mm -hmm. or a very uh, well-kept 60. Uh, that's not accurate <laughs> either. It can't be because she has been 12 for quite some time. I think I'd like to pin her age on that Fabergé egg-looking puzzle, which definitely seems mm -hmm. somewhere... I don't... I'm no antiques roadshow person. 15th to 17th yeah. century. That's the sort of stuff that mm -hmm. entertained aristocracy more during that time. The sphere of gold inside. There's many missing Fabergé eggs and it very well could be a Fabergé egg. So I'd like to pin her age somewhere around that. Whether she was an accidental vampire that was made very young or a child of vampire aristocracy at one point, who knows. But I'd, I'd like to pin her on like hundreds of years old. 500 years old that's i was thinking yeah like 200 to 300 was where with settling or in and around 200 i don't know why but i was like there's something that speaks to me of uh age but not unfathomable age um because there's still and and also like it seems to me 
and I could be dead wrong, but it seems to be that her, her life situation probably has not been like this. I think that there might have been times in her life where she had a permanent residence or close to a permanent residence. And maybe within the last 30 years or so, her nomadic lifestyle started. And the reason why is because her assistant is so fucking bad at it. Like, so fucking bad at it. And, like, even the shit that they're using, I'm like, so this is your fucking drain kit like a dirty funnel uh, and a tube and like a dirty thing in a doctor bag and you're like pulling a guy off of like like walking home from work in a park like you're not even and you're gonna like string him up out in the open like this is not an isol it looks isolated but you can tell that that's not isolated there's so many people around and and then like you know just with like the the sled and and like the the pole and his little poking stick that he uses to like push the body and shit like that so much of it seems makeshift so much of it seems i just found this now some of it might be this is easy to travel with but so much of it seems so much like they are just trying to figure this out now it seems so i mean there are better ways to go about getting blood and if they were really crafty they could probably steal blood like more crafty vampires doing contemporary vampire fiction from blood banks or something like that or have a, some sort of thrall that donates blood it, there's easier ways to go about this than this high risk behavior especially for an older gentleman uh hakan is not young and he's not swift and he's you know got aches yeah. and pains of a later middle-aged man he's he's too old for this and he mentions that he's getting too old for this not in so many words but yeah his tools are, are rudimentary he's certainly no jack the ripper because he does yeah. do this even more more in the open and has a greater chance of getting caught and it's almost like it's not Ellie picking off people that makes the move so often. It's him's fumbling and ending up in the fucking headlines all the time that makes the move so often. <laughs> it's so it's so bad how he is constantly like it doesn't see he does not have a single clean he has to run away and he doesn't even run away with the blood and Ellie is furious with him. Then another time Ellie has to take matters into her own hands because she needs blood. And then that's and then he then he gets completely foiled in his in the third attempt that he has at or they have at killing somebody in which he has to like well I can't escape and he pours fucking acid on his face and that's and I was like this was the plan how like I was like you would think that if he had been doing this for a number of decades because I don't know what the fiction is I've never read the book that this is based off of um but I would just get a sense that he has probably been her thrall since he was close to Oscar's age and has just you know she doesn't age and he does what what you gonna do now I have to say the remake force feeds us quite a bit of how their relationship works 
and how long they've been together and stuff like that. And then it makes it even a, a more of a point of how sad it is that this is definitely Oscar's future. Um, and he, he's simply a replacement for Hakan, where it seems a lot less heavy handed in the film. And I'd have to say, if he follows the same trajectory that we see Oscar following, he does. He didn't go to school. He didn't learn to, you know, do manly things. He's probably never really had to take care of a car or hoist an engine or dress a deer or any of these things that are quite typically male, especially in Eastern Europe or Northern Europe, where men serve in the army and things like that are conscripted. So, like, I don't think he has the know-how, the mechanical know-how to off these people and collect their blood and he's been fumbling like you say it's his first day on the job and it has been for 40 years because as a 12 year old he was forced into doing this sort of stuff and the kit he's been carrying he's probably been carrying that camera bag full of funnels and tubes for that many years it does come off that way do you think that ellie doesn't do it herself because she doesn't trust herself to do it. It's not clear to me why she needs him to do this. She is fully capable of luring people to be fed upon. She understands that um, that she needs to kill them after she feeds on them, much like 30 Days of Night, uh, to not create other vampires. She's not interested in growing a, a, a coven. She is uh, she is trying to just survive day to day. Um, the she does attack someone in a fairly crowded area and pays for that. But other than that, I don't really see her personally doing too many missteps. So why do you think she needs him? I that's part of what I don't really understand because she does have superhuman strength. She can take care of these bodies herself. Clearly that she's lazy or doesn't care maybe that's part of it and maybe she does need someone to uh, save her from herself because every time she kills somebody she sort of returns to Hakan with like oh I didn't oopsie I'm sorry you gotta take care of this body now which he didn't need to really honestly he, he, why didn't he put his foot down and be like you go out there and you drag that fucking body around I'm too old my back hurts you have the strength of a thousand men and can scale up buildings like it's no problem at all. I'm sure you can take care of this body. Grow up, you know, like take responsibility for your actions, Ellie. I, I wish that there was that movie <laughs> to watch because she mm -hmm. can take care of herself. Is it simply this creature comfort where she wants uh, a mate of some sort? To have some sort of connection beyond the connection of just draining human beings for sustenance that could be part of it too but it seems to be more like he is there only as a, a cattle herder i mean there's also the there's also the practical sense of uh she does look 12 so hard to rent a room hard to do things without an adult as the face um, I, her and Oscar are going to have a dick of a time because basically two kids but if they're not they don't have a problem necessarily with squatting and it's not uh, it's not really that big of a deal uh, particularly if let's say they kill somebody who lives somewhere 
if you just break into someone i guess she can't break into someone's house without being invited but that uh there there are ways in which she could function without it but maybe it is just easier there's like a weird sense that like it makes me think that perhaps she was from a well-off family many hundreds of years ago because there is that well i i am a lady and i have servants to do this type of thing and that isn't that perhaps normal to her uh it's hard to it's it's hard to really pin it down at the end of the day i suppose narratively speaking it's just there to set up the idea that ellie does have somebody and so because if she doesn't have somebody to do these types of things then she really doesn't need anybody and if she doesn't need anybody what is her what is her interest in this boy this idea that she had come from aristocracy tracks even more now that you mention it that she just needs a servant to feel like herself uh, a very devoted servant that she may have love for for sure there is a certain amount of personal relationship in in master slave relationships and that could be closer to it when i'm looking up more on a faberge eggs and none of the missing ones seem to really match this particular puzzle egg and some do have solid gold yolks so i think it may very well be a faberge egg or a prototype for faberge eggs and they're only a hundred and thirty years old ish they're they were produced okay. for two tsars of russia so she very well could have come from one of those families or killed someone in one of those families but it is like a, a weird thing and that's the only thing that ever House stuck Romanoff out stuff pardon i said house romanoff stuff exactly and like that's the one thing that really sticks out to me though in in this if i'm ever criticizing this particular arrangement is that she doesn't really need anyone not only because she's stronger which i went on about but she could make another vampire she accidentally bites yvonne and apparently because i haven't read the book i've only read the sequel and i've read portions of it to get a, a better idea of her physiology but Chris had filled me in that there is a lot more to do with Yvonne kind of figuring out there's something wrong with her and what the nature of her uh, disabilities are now, uh, i.e. bursting into flames and sunlight and stuff like that. Um, she can make another vampire and we've seen a lot more vampire duos and there's other vampires in literature that make an adult vampire so that they can cope. And it has to be that this she was an accidental vampire at one point herself so maybe doesn't really know how to mm -hmm. go about being aside from duplicating what a child of aristocracy would have had as a lifestyle yeah yeah it makes sense to me what um does end up happening is both ellie and oscar form this bond um that is very interesting because the way they refer often to this place as a suburb but i mean i have when you say suburb to me i think of a certain thing i think of houses and properties lawns fences like hedges that type of thing this looks like a building complex to me like if that's a suburb then uh do i live in a suburb because there's three built do you live in a suburb because you're surrounded by um like buildings on all sides is that like a suburb um by traditional definition i don't know but this the thing that i like about this is all the buildings generally face in a big square and in that square they have this intersection with bridges and orwellian looking play structure just things that like 
th things that like do not look comfortable or pleasant and yet Oscar loves to like hang out outside in the bitter cold and Ellie doesn't seem to feel the cold at all. She says that perhaps she's forgotten how uh, speaking to perhaps her age or maybe just her vampire physiology and they grow close to each other in lots of scenes with barely any dialogue and one scene with a Rubik's cube. And I always love how Rubik's cubes are the go-to for people for puzzle solving. Do you think that there's like people who are really good at Rubik's cubes that every time they see a Rubik's cube scene in a movie and they use the fact that someone can solve a Rubik's cube as some sort of indication of either supernatural ability or, or, or high intelligence, and they just sort of scoff to themselves. They're like, come on. I don't know. I see a Rubik's Cube, and I remember all the frustrating times I tried to solve the damn thing, and the only people I seemed to know that could solve them had a lot more time on their hands than I did, and were more intelligent. So, I mean, if anything, Ellie has lots of time on her hands. Yeah. Um, she definitely is a bit of a puzz head. Loves those puzzles. Uh probably because a lot of time by herself. I think that what I find so interesting about this film is that it really uh, it really does a good job of, in my opinion, as, as a young man looking at this and taking my perspective into Oscar's world. When you're, when you have a crush on a girl and you're that age, the sort of instantaneousness of it is, is, is very realistic because I find that, he, he's super into her right away, even though they also toss in some dialogue that I find that's very interesting, where they seem to say that it's not necessarily a romantic feeling because he seems to be not concerned with her gender or or is not phased at all by the fact that she does she says that she is not a girl on multiple occasions, which I think is very cool because, you know, that is just a construct. So they... That aspect of it is is very interesting, coupled with a very like sort of that childlike intensity of liking somebody. Uh, I was trying to think back on if I had some sort of intense crush on a girl when I was that age, and I honestly can't remember. Uh, you would have to bump me up maybe five more years before my first like super intense like oh my god I really like this girl emotion uh, was from. Uh, but. Yeah, I, I find it's very interesting that they decided to dwell on this because my understanding of the book is that the romance aspect of this is present, but it's but the director wanted to focus more on that in the film as opposed to some of the more gruesome horror aspects of this. Is it that accurate? From what I understand, yeah. And it isn't, like, it's hard to call it a romance in that it is, they yes. seem to be just very close friends. Yes, there's yeah. like a small kiss scene and hugging and stuff like that. And in some cultures and even here, there's a lot of, of hugging, even in same gender that are not romantically inclined friendships in the very young. So it could just be a very close friendship that he has and he mm -hmm. obviously needs and deserves and wants and it could be very good at because I find Oscar quirkiness aside, he's just a regular kid and... He is actually pretty interesting and smart, so it would be interesting to hang out with. So I think like the the romance is always kind of bothering me because they don't do anything really overtly romantic. 
even at one point when Ellie is uh, without her caretaker, which we'll get to in a minute, she crawls into bed with him. And it's not like romantic necessarily. I think he's more concerned for why she's there and what's wrong with her and just doesn't ask questions as his mode of caring for her. So a lot of the, the romance is just allowing them to be themselves. I don't know if that's the most deeply romantic thing that we can give one another as human beings these days. The romance that I sense from this comes from the, and, and the reason why it gets murky is because they're so young, it's hard to really even say what that would mean to you. you you're on the cusp of puberty, you, or, or maybe just on the early stages of it. And so it's hard to really articulate a lot of the feelings that you're feeling. I do get the sense more so than wanting a girlfriend. I think Oscar really just wants fucking anything and is so afraid to lose that, that she didn't, wouldn't care. Fuck the fact that like, you know, he's stabbing the air and saying squeal piggy and stuff like that. Like we all like, to me, that's not really, that's weird behavior that like other kids would be like, I'm not talking to that kid, but I don't, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that like Oscar is dangerous, but I would say that like he would be so afraid to lose that, so afraid for that to be taken away. Then in a weird way, I don't, it, it feels to me, I don't want to get controversial. It feels to me that Ellie is playing him like a fucking fiddle and knows ex has done this multiple times before. And you can even get a sense of her caretaker where he's like, I don't want you to see that boy tonight. I, th I, I was like, is that a hint of like jealousy? Is that a knowing, ah, my replacement? Um, like, is that like, you know, he feels like the end of the line. Uh, he's getting older. He said that he's fucked up a couple of times. He could see, you know, inevitability like, like, cause otherwise, why did he bring the acid with him? Like, he's like, people know what I look like and, and all that kind of weird shit that he does. So like, I think that Oscar's need of her as anyone is so intense. And in, in the early days of my, of me personally being interested in other people, like if it wouldn't matter if that person was fucking completely wrong for me, if anyone showed interest in me whatsoever, I was like, Ooh, I'm going to like, I like this person now. And if the real reason is like, why did you like that person? Well, they liked me. I knew that they liked me. So I liked them because I just want to be liked. And that's like a very honest thing I'm saying on the podcast right now that I might maybe regret later, but, but so like, that's where I see the, the relationship in that. And so, that level of intimacy without sexuality and the fact that Ellie is so much older than him. I, like, I understand that she looks like she's 12, but she is not fucking 12. So I, I, I definitely feel like Oscar's kind of duped into this, if that makes sense. Cause she even makes first contact. Yeah. And I've definitely struggled with the fact that she is definitely manipulating him and it's insidious and horrible and wrong. And she's victimizing him more so than any of the bullies but then every time i watch it i have that in my mind like i'm gonna watch for things that reinforce this idea i have yeah and it gets knocked down every time because of her genuine interest and care for oscar mm -hmm. not only helping him stand up to bullies later but like just the genuine care and helping him grow as a person by telling him to hit back at the bullies and and caring about his day-to-day -day life and seeming to care about not getting him in trouble as well mm -hmm. so like 
things like that. And the fact that he does get up and walk away from her quite a few times and not in a frustrated way, but probably in that he's very used to people being false friends to him and has probably discovered that it's a lot easier for him to just get up and walk away from people than investing any care in people that won't return it. But I also wish more people in real reality would be so bold as to admit that they like people because they're liked by them <laughs> and they like being liked because if more people would just figure that out or admit it, there would be way less abusive and bullshit relationships and toxic relationships out there. So yeah, high five Wes. That's the 38-year-old Wes being able to articulate something that perhaps a 15-year-old Wes wouldn't have been able to. What does end up happening is Ellie, whose caretaker has... Uh, he is subservient to her. She can't, like, she shoes him out of a room. Like, get the fuck out of here. And he will listen. So he's not the boss of her. And when he makes that request to her, like, don't see that boy tonight, she strokes his face and he closes his eyes because, you know, he welcomes the touch. But it definitely has that vibe of, ah, I'm going to do what I want. But your complaint is noted. It's, it's that vibe that I get from that. But he is going to fuck up more so than he's ever fucked up before because he is going to string someone up to drain them in a gymnasium locker room and people are going to discover him in there and he is going to take a mason jar of sulfuric acid or something and he is going to hide around in a corner and he's going to pour it over his fucking face and he is going to melt it down practically to the bone. And that is because too many people in the neighborhood have spotted him, chatted with him, know that he is associated with Ellie. Uh, they probably, they assume that that's her father. So he knows that if they grab him, because there's a murderer on the loose and he's essentially been caught red-handed, he can't be, he does not want to be traced back to Ellie. And in a weird way, I guess to sort of, well, Old Yeller, it's time for me to take you out back. <laughs> Ellie goes to the hospital looking for her uh, friend and brings him to the window and feeds on him, which is, I suppose, the last final act that he can do of like, and I will, the last thing I'll do with my living body is I will be a meal for you to get you through one more day because that has been my job since we got together to give you one more day of feeding and then just tosses his fucking ass out the window in a, in a drop scene funnier than the guy falling and hitting his head on the fucking propeller in Titanic or whatever the fuck. Like, better than that, holy shit, does this dude hit the ground like a ton of bricks. Uh, but doesn't die instantaneously enough that he would not feel the fact that he's probably fucking freezing now, laying in that snow, and then he eventually dies. But now Ellie is truly on her own and needs somebody like Oscar to be with her. And that's when she really ramps up the, I really like you, I really like you. She just, she and always re refers to her as your Ellie. So she's really putting the screws to him. Even to the point of, having some sort of impromptu date which seemed to be something that she kept at arm's length before that and going over to his house we get the titular let the right one in moment 
where we get a little bit of vampire lore. Up until this point, we've not really seen a lot of what she can and can't do, what the rules are for this particular vampire, except for like avoiding light. And we get the great reason why a vampire needs to be invited in. Have you ever seen an explanation for why a vampire can't be invited in outside of this film, Wes? No. Now, I was actually going to ask you this question because I, being of my age, I remember how it was depicted in shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It was essentially like a barrier that they physically could not cross, like a force field. I had never seen this bit of lore incorporated really into anything modern because it's 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 a ridiculous vampires have a lot of weaknesses and parameters it's to the fact in which in a lot of ways a regular human is more dangerous than a vampire because most things that can kill a vampire can also kill me like i'll also die if you stab me in my heart or if you cut my head off or if you light me on fire but i can cross running water and if you throw toothpicks on the ground i don't have to pick them up and sunlight doesn't kill me nor does silver uh or salt do anything to me uh i can't even i can't even think of all the weird vampire things that they do to the point in which every film and perhaps as a novelist you could speak more to this but how, and as a novelist who's written a, quite a bit of vampire fiction yourself, how do you go about sifting through all of that and then saying, this is what I'm including and this is what I'm taking out? It depends on where you want their weaknesses to lie and where you want the power in your protagonist or antagonist, depending on who's the hero, <laughs> uh, where you want that strength to lie. And by and large, it's, it's more fun to have a vampire that's like, your crosses don't work on me. That's fiction. I can come into whatever house I want. That's fiction. But I can't drink holy water. You know, you gotta, it, it's more fun to have them refute what we think we have on them as far as a weapon being they can't come in or, or those things. But as far as the actual reason they can't come in or the effect of them coming into a place without an invitation, I've never really seen it outside of this force field or I, I don't really, I've never really seen anything that affects them or affects them physically like this particular thing does. But I love this explanation. This is the, the unspoken vampire secret that they, you know, one cool trick with your vampire is that if you do have them come in without being invited, they just bleed out and oh, I guess would eventually die. I guess I would say die or enter some kind of stasis, uh, very akin to when they're asleep in the daytime, a virtually comatose. And I think that if you were to get a vampire in that position, they they would either die of their own, like die on their own, or they would become they would be so vulnerable that their powers would be sapped from them. So it would be like Dracula or Carmilla or or any of the vampires that die asleep in their fucking coffin without much of a fight. I would think quite oppositely that when they're losing blood like that, they would slowly become their animal selves and because they're very hungry mm. all of a sudden and maybe would attack absolutely anybody, anything, and then go on sort of a rage. Sort of like she does when she's pretty hungry and attacks Yvonne at, at that point at that one particular time where she's attacking people with other people around in sort of crowded area. 
because she was just so very hungry and and driven to hunger by blood so losing blood maybe sends them into a frenzied state as opposed to torpor there's a thing that ellie does a couple of times in this film and the the let me in without permission scene is one of it and also the eating of real food is the other in which instead of just explaining to oscar what would happen she demonstrates she he buys her or or them some snacks to share and she doesn't he she declines and then he seems sad and so she's like okay i'll eat one and then she's puking her guts out and then she goes over to his house and she's in a nice cute outfit that's all white and he's like, why can't you come in? And instead of just saying, because I'll explode in blood, you don't want that, and I'm wearing a white shirt. She's just like, all right, fine, I'll show you. And and so there's there's this weird thing, and I kept asking myself, why does she put herself through this? And there's the interpretation of, oh, she just likes them. And she just is trying to do that thing that's when you like someone in a relationship and you don't like to do the things or you don't normally do the things that they want to do, and this is the extreme version of that. Like, oh, this person likes this type of music and I can't stand it, so I'm gonna go to a concert with them just because I like them. But in, but imagine if instead of it's music you don't like, it makes you vomit or explode in blood. Maybe it's that, but I think that it's the, the, the cynical side of me that doesn't buy this whole Wes Anderson, isn't it cute that these two kids like each other uh, shit is, is she is making herself vulnerable to him as a ruse to see how look how vulnerable i am i can't eat regular food and i get so sick and weak and oh like look i'm like you have to save me you have to like say i can come in so this pain will stop and it triggers that protective instinct that that we have for people that we have affection for and and i think it's just another because would she really stand there until she died i don't think so like there's no way she was playing it was a game of chicken to see if she, if he would okay come in i'm sorry like like and so there's i think it's a further level of manipulation again that's my cynical interpretation of it there's a positive interpretation of it too manipulation or fishing because his reaction both times is to hug her pretty much immediately and comfort yeah. her and try and help her and it's like a vow i guess of of wanting to take care of her an unspoken vow and both times it works so it could be if this boy doesn't react like that then i'll tear his throat out i guess because that's what i do <laughs> maybe yeah let me ask you this there is an entire subplot in this film that we have not touched on and it's coming from the adults you see the adults got them some lucky loos they've they've got a lot of uh beard stroking to do and throat clucking to be what's to be done with these dead bodies one guy has an abundance of cats if you think that the 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 guy in um alice sweet alice has a lot of cats this guy also has a lot of cats and everyone seems to just and you would think oh he must be some creepy loner that no one ever sees i'm like no they have full-on scenes with all the adults in his apartment swarmed by cats and no one seems to no one seems to acknowledge it um but they know something is wrong. They know that murder is happening. And even when they capture the murderer, there is a sense of they see things going on. The adults see Oscar being picked on and they, you know, they only react when he fights back. 
and like hits Connie on the side of the head, which is a hilarious fucking scene. I love it because it's just like whack five full seconds. And then he drops down to his knees like, ah, and then you're like, oh, my God, he hit him really hard. Um, and then and then like the guy with the cats literally sees stuff like somebody getting fucking murdered and bring and they brings it to the attention of other neighborhood adults. But no one really goes to the police. What's your take on that? It is kind of strange that they don't go to the police. Perhaps they don't trust the police in this particular neighborhood or this particular country. I don't really know what the relationship with the people and the police are. And the police are nowhere to be seen, uh, really. The police bring Hakan to the hospital for having strung up a teenager in the gymnasium and accuse him of the other murders. But that we don't we don't see that we don't see the police really interacting with people very much at all and they don't really talk about going to the police they want some sort of vigilante justice perhaps they want to round up this kid mm -hmm. that he straight up saw killing his friend and they take his word for it of course because everyone just keeps an eye on everybody else in this little complex it seems mm -hmm. so Perhaps they've lived here all this time and that one outsider comes and out, suddenly everyone's dying and it's a part of sort of wanting to oust the outsider, the xenophobia of some sort, or mistrust of youth, which there probably is a lot of that. Maybe they're, they're very happy to blame this young girl because of mistrust of youth. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, not really, I'm not really sure because it could speak to other political tensions going on in this area, especially in the 80s, which I'm just not, not privy to, right? This area, Sweden was dealing with um, the the effects of uh, communism still. So this was this was still when the, uh, this was the, the beginning of the end for that influence heavily on Sweden. And, you know, uh, the, the Iron Curtain is, is, is gonna be coming down and and eventually, the director talked about this, about this sort of desolate, isolated looking area um, were a place where not a lot of like cultures and freedoms were allowed. And it was very uh, authoritarianism uh, driven. And, uh, and so that is why there seems to be like this bleakness. He described the, the, the suburb in which he had filmed this and had said that if you look at photos of it from the 1980s versus the photos of it in present time, it looks like a completely different landscape. You go from having a bank and one liquor store and a, a social services thing to like bars and tattoo shops and video stores and all kinds of things that were not available back then. So that might have something to do with the fact that people feel on their own and and don't necessarily trust authority because the authority around them is so strict and they don't want to get involved. They are worried about being falsely imprisoned. The guy with the cat says something. He's like, I don't want to get in in interrogated. Like, like uh, you know, I don't want lights in my face and I don't want them. Like, it's scary. The, the, the police are frightening to them. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Ellie straight up fucking bites one of them and turns her into a vampire. She has to get kicked off by a guy because she's so hell-bent on draining this dude. And then she runs away, seemingly saving her life. Mm -hmm. But she has become Nosferatu. Which is something that she doesn't seem to like having... Uh 
devolved into is something that she tries to mm. avoid and i guess that is part of why she needs somebody to keep blood handy i guess her hunting even if she was hunting every night for herself and my my ideal place where she is fine by herself and can take care of these bodies by herself maybe hunting by herself and becoming more and more feral would have her kind of trapped in this mode and it's much easier to get by in polite society looking like a normal 12 year old instead of a monstrous fiend that's leaping around buildings and people's yeah. shoulders and stuff mm -hmm. but that makes a lot of sense i'd totally forgotten about that line of i don't want lights in my face uh as far as their will uh, unwillingness to involve the police that makes a lot of sense so this vigilante justice is really the best outcome for them that makes sense yeah um you want to know that I find interesting? We, we've, they, this film tackles this idea of lore uh, about letting the right one in or giving a vampire permission, and it does it in a way that I've never seen. Another thing that this film does that I've never seen is the very negative reaction cats have to being in the presence of the vampire. Holy yeah. shit. Among their friends, and they meet at this guy's house, they meet at this bar, kind of like pub down the road and which is a kind of cute almost kitcheny looking pub it's my favorite looking pub in movies so far because it just looks so comfy and warm uh compared to the outside frigid cold for the sweden in this season but uh yeah when their friend yvonne after being bitten and having sort of had an adverse reaction to sunlight she's just acting very weird and feeling very out of sorts comes over to discuss you know, not only to have a drink and gossip, but to discuss what they're going to do about this young girl that's killing people. Uh, she's, as soon as she walks in, all the cats freak out. And I think it's the only use of CG really here because they're, they're, they can't... They, some of them look a little bit CG. Did they say anything in the oh, for, special uh -huh. features you watched? Or did you, did you did it look awkward to you? These look like fake cats? Yeah, there. So there are over fifty. There are over fifty CG shots that take place within this film. Most of them are Ellie's eyes. They artificially enlarge her eyes in several scenes uh, to give her sort of like an otherworldly appearance. But one of the CGI scenes is um, the cats. The cats uh, definitely are computer generated. Um, there's a scene towards the end that I would have sworn had CGI in it. But that's not the case. That was all practical. Yeah, the actress that they have playing Yvonne is uh, Karen Berquist, and she is a mime. She's a professional mime. So the the body acting in this scene yeah. uh, is definitely all her. <laughs> like, oh my god, all those cats. I mean, can you? Can, I wonder if you it, could train ten cats to just leap on people like that. But the way that her body reacts to it. It lends itself so much to the pain and discomfort and, and fear that she's feeling being attacked by these cats. But I think it's so much owed to her job as a mime. Mm, I The first time I saw that scene, I remember laughing because it kind of reminds me of like, I, I was like, God, it's like this movie turned into Stray or, or, or Curse of the Demon or something the where rats. he's fighting like the big panther rats yeah <laughs> like it, it's just so funny and and she's essentially just like throwing cats off of her and she's falling down the fucking stairs and and the dude just takes his littlest kitten and he just goes onto the balcony and closes the door 
and he just watches from afar as this all happens while the uh Yvonne's uh boyfriend or husband or whatever is trying to like what do you know? Like, you know what's going on. And I'm certain this guy with the cats knows that this is a vampire problem. Like, there's no way he doesn't. He saw at that underpass the first guy getting killed and Ellie twisting this dude's head around 180 degrees like she's fucking Jason Voorhees. And then he has seen her tale of her attacking her and then watching the way that his cats witness, like, like essentially cats, like, this is an evil presence. We're going to fucking attack it. It's not even that they're afraid of them. It's, it's that they're like, I am. we are going to fucking kill this thing. And I was like, what an interesting... I've never seen that before. Yeah, we've all seen dogs growl and cats hiss at things. And even earlier in the film, we see a cat hiss and back away from Ellie. But nothing quite like this, where the cats attack. I, I like this scene quite a lot. And I, I need to read the book from beginning to end just to get more of Yvonne's uh, discovery of her disabilities as a vampire, not knowing that she's a vampire, because that's uniquely scary. Not knowing you have all sorts of medical problems when the symptoms present is, is horrifying, let alone the life sentence that is vampirism. Or should I say life sentence? Um, she doesn't want to be a vampire. Even if she has figured it out, which she never admits, she doesn't want to be a vampire. We find this out without much delay when she's admitted to hospital because after that horrible fall, she's admitted to hospital. Yeah, she asks the the nurse if she could just open the shades for her. She knows that she has this uh, negative reaction to sunlight. She'd already seen it. And I think that she is just drawing this to its inevitable conclusion. This is one of the most violent, second most violent vampire immolation scenes I can seem to remember the most uh, owing to um, the hunger is probably where that's like like the most violent where you're literally seeing a vampire burst into flames and also gruesomely fall apart at the same time. So that's pretty damn violent. But this is just like a huge eruption into flames. Yeah, most of the vampires um, giving their way to sunlight or being killed by sunlight are somehow romantic or, or gentle, more gentle than you'd think they'd be or... They, they resign themselves to their death. Uh, she knows it's painful and it is as painful as it would be for you or I to be burnt alive, I'm pretty sure. Uh, mm -hmm. it, just that painful. And yeah, the fact that her whole body bursts into flames immediately. It's very well filmed. It's a very stationary shot from the foot of the hospital bed where they take a different angle in the remake. And I think there's something lost in that because you um, feel more like a passerby in the other one where you feel a little more trapped in that room. And the way that the flames are licking the ceiling is just as you would imagine it. It's just done so very well and so very believably and so very painfully. And you can hear her screaming. It's very, very, very intense. And it is one of the set pieces of this because I'd have to say more quietly though is the state of Hakan's face after he's melted half of it off with acid. He he's still recognizable though. There'll be no recognizing yeah. Yvonne after this. If she wow, why did Nelly just turn Hakan into a vampire and shove him out in the sunlight? That would have taken care of the body. Holy shit, you ain't kidding. The this is leading up to something that I found very interesting about this film, and I wanted to know your take on it. So there, within this um, suburb, within this uh, 
courtyard type area. There's a, a bridge, one of those bridges that you see in parks that like you could go over it, but you don't really need to. And there's like a walkway underneath it. So it's just decorative more than anything. Ellie kills her first person there. And that's the dude that she twists his head all the way around. And that's the death that is witnessed by the guy with all the cats. And there's blood in the snow and Ellie does her best to sort of hide it by, you know, snow covers all, snow covers all. And she just puts snow in front of it. Then the guy with all the cats will bring the neighborhood parents to this area and say, look at this thing. And then they will see that blood was there. Then Yvonne is going to sort of desperately go back there and search through the snow like she's looking for something. And there's a weird part of me is like, is she looking for the old frozen blood so she can eat it or something? I'm not entirely sure. Then her boyfriend slash husband, whoever he is, after she has already died via sunlight, he goes back to that spot and just stares at it longingly. There's no dialogue, there's no other characters. He's just sort of looking at it. And it seems in that moment that he he's resolved to what his next move is going to be. But what is it about that spot that they keep returning to it time and time again? Is it because it seems the way that I laid it out now, well, that makes sense. But also when you're just watching the movie at the time, I couldn't quite grasp is how is this one area where one of the murders had occurred? Why did that become significant to everybody? Why is not a spot where the frozen body is found like revisited? Why isn't the site where Yvonne actually was attacked revisited? Why are none of these other areas being revisited by any of these characters? This one thing becomes significant. Having just watched Mr. Mercedes, where... It's a Stephen King story. A man had killed a lot of people with a Mercedes, and the Mercedes, two years later, is in the impound and is evidence. So, because it's still under investigation, he's still at large, this killer. So, the lead investigator, who is who actually retires, but continues to return to stare at this car. And he stared at it time and time again. Whether he, they had collected mm -hmm. all the evidence, definitely. They'd combed over this car numerous times, but he returns there to stare at it as if the answer is written on that car. After being retired, the guys that run the impound lot still reluctantly let him to go in there and stare at the car for hours or sit in the car for hmm. hours, thinking, pondering, puzzling, trying to put the pieces together. And later on in the show, he spends more time staring at this fucking car even after it's not evidence anymore he has this sort of uncomfortable unease with the car even though it looks different but he can't help staring at it probably recalling how many times he puzzled over it as if it had an answer so maybe that's part of it where they are they are all the investigators now and they return to that one spot with that one piece of evidence that doesn't really fit and they just want it to fit they want the answer to be written there under the snow. Not in Yvonne's case so much because she is uh, confusedly looking for blood or maybe some sort of link to her master because I'm not sure if any of the saliva or essence of Ellie is also contained within this spot, but uh, it is where they they feel the answers lie in, in Yoka's death. So I, that's the only explanation I have for it because you're right, they should be going to these other sites, definitely. But it does embolden Yvonne's boyfriend to try and get to the bottom of this. Oh, he's uh, he's going full uh, Belmont or Van Helsing. 
he is he is going to uh, kill the creature, and without the the benefit of having a Van Helsing show up, he's going to take it into his own hands. There's an interesting scene um, that uh, when. Ellie sleeps during the day. She doesn't sleep in a coffin. She sleeps in a bathtub with a blanket over it. Seems to make sense for the little makeshift. And honestly, as uncomfortable as I find that as a giant man who does not fit in normal bathtubs, I suppose for a small 12-year-old girl uh, wearing, um, at this point, uh, Oscar's mother's dress, um, uh, she looks quite comfortable and serene in her little spot. Now, she had left a message for Oscar letting him know that she was going to be there. And she's in the bathroom and don't wake her up and she'll meet him tonight. Oscar is waiting there in the uh, apartment when somehow, I said not somehow, Yvonne's boyfriend knows where this guy lived. I suppose it was interesting that he just immediately went to the bathroom because I was like, how did he know that she was in there? But doesn't matter because she is in danger. He is going to find her, and this is that scene lit in all vampire fiction where you find the grave and you pull the the coffin lid open and you see the vampire serenely sleeping there. And, you know, perhaps if you're Carmilla, you're you're partially submerged in blood with, uh, you know, flowers all around you and it's very beautiful. But in this case, you're Ellie and you just got a lot of cozy blankets around you because, you know, why not be comfortable? And he seems to be about to cut her throat. But then he's like, I can't see. And he decides to pull the 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 um, the tape off of the windows. Meanwhile, Oscar's like, I'm going to stab you good. But fortunately, he doesn't have to. He never actually has to take that step. But he does give Ellie a moment, just a moment, to take matters into her own hands. Quite violently, too. I like the way that this plays out. And I mean, what better place to sleep than the bathtub? It's where you are recommended to sleep during fallout or war because it's uh, genuinely safer. It's reinforced, more reinforcing your bed. And there's typically no windows in a bathroom, although there's a window in this one. But a lot of the time there's no windows in a bathroom. So it's safest. It's the safest, most reinforced place in the house, usually. So it makes sense that she doesn't have a portable coffin, right? So there's no chest yeah. freezer they can empty out and make it into a cozy little coffin. So this this works really well, yeah. but it is just that moment of distraction that she needs to leap. Now, Oscar's never really seen her in action, and it seems that he's not interested in seeing her in action. He gives a little bit of a voyeuristic glance, but otherwise closes the bathroom door and leaves what I think his name is Laka to be decimated and eaten by his friend Ellie. You know, the whole time that this scene is happening, there's somebody pounding on the fucking, like, quiet down down there. And what's so funny is long after that scene is over and the guy's dead, <laughs> there's still somebody like, quiet, quiet. I was like, those two kids are being as quiet as a mouse right now. There's not even a sound to be heard if you were in the apartment, let alone if you were in any one of the neighbors. And I was just like, dude, when you bang on the floor to tell someone to shut the fuck up and then you stop hearing noise, you're free to stop fucking pounding on the ceiling. But I feel as though that was just to emphasize like somebody heard something. They, This person is now dead. There's blood all over this fucking apartment. Ellie tells him what 
Oscar probably already suspects and that it is he needs to go. Yeah, and there's no just hiding out in Oscar's apartment and explaining away her presence to his mother. They need to go. G-O, go. And probably in a repeat of her life many times and definitely in Hawkins' early years, they end up on a train. Going where? Going where? You can find out in the sequel that is written in collection Let the Old Dreams Die by John Abbey Lindquist who has that title story of Let the Old Dreams Die as the sequel. So if you really want to find out any more of where they ended up, then check that out. But while they're on this train, it is bright daylight out and Ellie's probably bundled in blankets within a box with Oscar at her side, who undoubtedly bought the tickets and loaded him and his cargo onto the train. She's tapping out Morse code, which they'd use to communicate between their bedroom walls. and. Thank you to Wikipedia for letting me know what word she tapped out and Oscar responded. Was that in the thing or had you looked that up? Did you know what they had tapped out at that moment? I do know, but I also learned it from online, but I didn't, it's not in the film. Like if you watch the film with subtitles, um, which I did, um, it doesn't indicate at all what they're typing out in Morse code, but you can let the audience know. Ellie taps out kiss and... Oscar taps out little kiss back to her. In the film and the subtitles, they do, they don't translate most of the Morse code, but there is one evening when Oscar taps out to her sweet dreams and they do uh, enlighten us via subtitles as to what they're tapping out. But those last words, very important words that sort of sum up again and reinforce that perhaps Ellie does have real romantic connection with Oscar perhaps because she's probably terrified she's in a box and she's yeah. it's bright daylight where she should be sleeping but she's more interested in relaying to Oscar a little term of endearment really precious stuff I can tell you where my thoughts on despite the fact that the, through a lot of the, the film I do think Ellie is manipulating Oscar I think the redemption and what makes this a happy ending to me uh, even though, uh, you know, I always think I was like, I guess Oscar's just taken off and I don't know what he's doing about his parents, but because he didn't seem to ha like particularly dislike them. He's like, bye, mom and dad. I, I, I have a girl now. I'm leaving. It's the fact that she does leave without him first. He goes to her apartment after she says that she's leaving and all the stuff, the, the Fabergé egg, Ellie's belongings are missing. And Oscar goes back to, I guess I'm just regular weird village of the damned looking motherfucker at school getting bullied. He's he's part of this after school exercise program and he's going to do swimming with his weird instructor. There's this this sequence, this sequence in the pool is what forever captured my imagination about this film because it's quite uh, melodic and it's very still and it's talking about the eternal qualities of love and it's talking about a lot of things that back in 2008 would not necessarily capture my attention i was in a very i was in a far more visceral headspace than i wanted things to be a lot more exciting and all that kind of stuff and this sequence became the sequence in which i have seen this film several times but if i'm being honest with you I have seen this pool scene even more times than I've watched 
the movie because I fucking love it so much. And I was convinced that it was all done with CGI, but it is not. It is all practical. What ends up happening is the Connie or Khan is the bully that's been tormenting Oscar throughout the film, like putting his pants in a urinal, doing all kinds of stuff, like levels of bullying that I remember being a kid and like name calling, but I was never physically bullied. Not really. I was punched in the arm a few times by a kid, but I beat that kid up. So like, like I, I was, so I don't have the experience of, you know, I, I was, I was popular and well-liked. So I never was never really bullied, but like the, the thing to, um, to, to, to emphasize is even this next level bully, the super bully that, that is Khan's brother, where you get the sense where, okay, this is where he's learning this behavior from. And he's, they're probably from a, a family that is full of bullies and everyone is just trying to find somebody just a bit more weaker than they are so they can just get their frustrations out. And so this film takes on this huge meaning of bullying turning to violence and Ellie being these monstrous urges that um, are in all of us, the, the potential in all of us to be sweet and innocent or monstrous and deadly. And when Oscar is like marching in the water and I'm not exactly sure like what the point is here, this teacher's got like a little radio and he's like, huh, 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 huh. And it's so weird. But when the, the bullies lure the teacher away and clear out all of these other kids that are in the swimming pool area, they basically hold Oscar's head underwater and they say, if you can hold your breath for three minutes, somehow I'll only nick you with, he's got a switchblade knife. And if you can't hold your breath, I'm going to fucking gouge your eye out. And everyone else seems to think that this is a joke. Even Connie, who like is, was the lead bully up until this point. But then you realize what a super bully is capable of real sadism. And you get the sense that he wouldn't care if this kid died. And this is all about revenge for the fact that Oscar hit Connie's ear with a big orange stick, the, the corpse poking stick that was used earlier. So they hold his head underwater and this sequence goes on for about a minute and there's a lot of tension and the clock is ticking. And then all of a sudden you see little feet of sneakers that we recognize getting like along the pool, like dragging from one end of the pool to the other. And then the feet go away and then you just see a head plunge into the fucking water and start to sink. And meanwhile, the hand that has been holding Oscar down the entire time is revealed to no longer be attached to its owner. And it just drifts underneath the water. And then you see Ellie's uh, little kid arm pull Oscar up out of the water, who doesn't really seem out of breath. So maybe he, maybe he could have done it. Three minutes is a long time, but I don't know. But that to me is the indication that you you could read it many ways if she truly had feelings for him or truly cared about him maybe she would love him enough to to leave and not come back because she knows where the this life with her ends it ends with her being a 12 year old girl and him being an old dead man or she realizes in that moment that she absolutely needs him she wants him specifically. She could find another thrall. I'm sure she's done this before. So I don't think it would be that difficult for her. But she found something in Oscar that she didn't want to lose and she wasn't willing to say goodbye to. She left that note for Oscar that said to flee is freedom and to stay is not. And so 
she went back for him. And so that's the real indication that she probably does really care about him. It's the fact that she came back, consequently saving his life. But, and, and I think that's what turns us into a happy ending where it's like, oh, and it's also the most vampire muscle she flexes because it literally gives you an idea how powerful she actually is because she is killing multiple people in the span of a second before. And you can see when you see their bodies, they didn't even have time to react. They're all where they were standing dead. Yeah. So it would have been a real blitzkrieg attack. I, I always wonder, is it that she got to the train station and was like, oh, they're not selling me a ticket because I have no shoes on or whatever. I need Oscar. Or <laughs> did she just, was she just watching? Was she not planning on taking him? And she was up in the skylight just being like, oh, I'm going to miss him. Wait a second. What's happening? And saw this go on and it just it enraged her, inflamed her protective and caring instincts. And she hadn't planned on that. Or had she deliberately gone back there because I miss Oscar. I want him to come with me. Maybe I can talk him into it. I'll just hang out behind the pool until he's done. <laughs> and then this happened. So it's always like... You know, not explained away, and I, I like that. I'll have to read the book to see if there's any more insight as to why she returned. Mm. So what have we got next for him? Coming up next, we have a new film. We're, like, not that Let the Right One In is completely old, but it's fairly old now, and we're not going to watch, like, uh, an actual Hammer horror film. Um, we're going to watch The Perfection, the buzz-worthy Netflix hit that I didn't have high hopes for, but once watching it, wow, I really love this film. If you are interested in things like Eye for an Eye or The Eye and uh, Black Swan, then this has some real interest here, although it is more like funny games at times as well. So if you like any of those titles, then I highly recommend The Perfection. And you, Wes, haven't watched it yet, so this will be fun. I'm dragging you kicking and screaming. Or not so kicking and screaming. I'm dragging you happily <laughs> into watching a film for the show. Yeah, I always trust your uh, instincts when it comes to horror. I, I absolutely don't look lightly down on things that you say, hey, Wes, you should probably check this out. It's pretty good. Uh, usually you're right. I, don't, I, th I think we very seldom disagree. But yeah, so that'd be interesting. I think after this, I almost want to watch something like The Purge or something where, you know, a whole bunch of lunatics descend upon a mild-mannered little town and uh, throw it into a complete riotous disarray. And then the police have to get called in to drag all the near-do-wells out. And maybe with horsies, because I, I do like mounted units when it comes to police and we're getting to witness a lot of that in ottawa so i think that we ought to after the perfection which does not reflect either of our lives in any way shape or form it's complete escapism for wes and i uh, we need to watch something that is firmly rooted in what we're living through here in ottawa right now let me tell you something if 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 the recent events have taught me anything it's like maybe the purge isn't such a bad idea <laughs> holy Shit. Oh my Wholeheartedly God. agreed. And a lot oh of people have likened it to that. So I don't know if there's a new Purge film or maybe we'll watch that Paranormal Activity, which still doesn't reflect what we're seeing on our streets. But if you can come up with a really good title that reflects what we're seeing on our streets, I am in like Flynn. <laughs> like the crazies? Something like that. Yeah, we can oh do the crazies. But anyways, uh, on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.